Gents, welcome to Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. You might have heard this guy recently. My flagship proposal is the freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for every American adult starting at age 18. This would create millions of jobs, make our children and families stronger, and give all Americans a better chance to transition in the economy of the 21st century. It's not left, it's not right, it's forward. That was Andrew Yang a U.S. Democratic presidential candidate for the 2020 U.S. election. As you heard, his flagship proposal is the Freedom Dividend, which is his way of saying Universal Basic Income, or UBI for short. Basically, free money for every adult. As the name sounds, it's a pretty crazy idea, the government giving free money to every adult, sometimes children as well, no strings attached. For many reasons, the idea is picking up speed. So what better issue to discuss on Hidden Perspective? In this episode, I'll go through the questions, what exactly is UBI? Where did this radical idea come from? And do we have any experiments on UBI? And if so, what happens when you just give people free money? The next few episodes will dive into the political arguments people are making for and against UBI, whether they're from the left or the right side of politics. So first off, what is UBI? He's longtime UBI advocate and professor of developmental studies at the University of London and former chairman of the Basic Income Earth Network, Guy Standing. A basic income would be if every one of us in this room and the children would have the right to a modest, regular payment from the state that would be unconditional in behavioral terms Paid in cash, you can do what you like with it, and it would be individual. That's what we mean by a basic income. As you heard, Guy Standing refers to UBI as basic income, but it has a range of names like guaranteed income, social dividend, or a citizen's dividend. For consistency, though, we'll go with UBI. So this is what we mean by UBI. It goes to everyone, most proposals like Yang's only go to adults, but others, like Guy Standings, give it to kids as well. It's a basic amount. Most peg this to the country's poverty line. Uh, Yang has this at $12,000 per year. It's unconditional, so whether you're rich or poor, no strings attached, yep, you can do whatever you like with it, whether that's buying crack or buying a new car. And it's regular cash money, deposited straight into your bank account. So you might be thinking, why the rich? Well, there are a few reasons for this. First off, it's an economic right, so like all rights, it must be secured to everyone within a particular country. The second reason is more political in nature. It's much easier to propose a policy that benefits the rich and the poor. It's more likely to get voted through parliament. And the third reason is that the rich receive the UBI, but sometimes it gets clawed back through higher taxes, so they won't be receiving the whole amount. But there's also another reason, which is that not all people would give it to the rich. This is where UBI gets really interesting, in my opinion, because UBI has a hidden secret. What would at first seem like a left-wing fantasy 
Many people on the right, people who believe in small government and personal responsibility, also want a form of UBI. One of these people was in fact the modern godfather of free market capitalism, the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman. His UBI-like proposal was a negative income tax. Here is Milton Friedman explaining what that is. The proposal for a negative income tax is a proposal to help poor people by giving them money, which is what they need, rather than as now, by requiring them to come before a governmental official, detail all their assets and their liabilities, and be told that you may spend X dollars on rent, Y dollars on food, etc., and then be given a handout. The idea of the negative income tax is to treat people who are poor in the same way as we treat people who are rich. Both groups would have to file income tax returns, and both groups would be treated in parallel way. Under current law, if you or I file an income tax return, and we have, let's say, I were a family of four, head of a family of four, I would be entitled to an exemption of $3,000 without paying a tax. That is, if I had an income of $3,000, I would have an exemption of $3,000, I would pay no tax. If I had an income of $4,000, I would have a positive taxable income of $1,000, I would be required to pay a tax on that $1,000. Suppose I have an income of $2,000. Then, by the same arithmetic, I have a negative taxable income of $1,000. Minus $1,000 is my taxable income. The idea of the negative income tax is to apply a tax rate to that minus $1,000 and give a man a, a subsidy in proportion to it. As Friedman explains, the negative income tax is basically the reverse of the income tax system that we're all familiar with. If you earn above a certain income level, you pay income taxes, but if you earn below that level, you actually get a cash subsidy. But it is important to note that there are some differences between UBI and a negative income tax in practice. First off, the negative income tax cash subsidy is only given to those earning below an income level. In other words, it's means tested through the tax system, which means that rich people don't receive the cash subsidy directly. But the implementation of the negative income tax into the tax system is likely to reduce the amount that rich people pay in income taxes anyway. And if UBI is introduced with a flat tax on any income earned starting from your first dollar, UBI and a negative income tax are actually identical in post-tax income for individuals at every level. And the second difference is that Friedman proposed the negative income tax as an alternative to government welfare whereas many UBI advocates actually want UBI on top of the current welfare system. So that's UBI in a nutshell. You might be surprised to learn, like I was, that UBI is actually an extremely old idea. In 1516, Thomas More introduced UBI in his book Utopia in order to prevent petty theft. The idea was, hey, let's not kill people for stealing things like bread and instead just give them a basic income, so they don't steal in the first place. Quick tidbit here, utopia actually translates in ancient Greek to no place, and this is actually the book that gave us our modern-day understanding of the word utopia, but I digress. So Thomas More's book goes on to influence other thinkers, um, and in England, it influences the eventual enactment of the Poor Laws of 1601, which forced parishes to collect money for the poor. In 1796, US revolutionary Thomas Paine advocated for UBI, which he called an Earth Endowment. 
Basically, everyone at the age of 21 would get a sum of money as compensation for others using the earth in its natural form. In the 1800s, John Stuart Mill argues for UBI as a subsistence of every member of the community, whether capable or not of labour. After World War I, the philosopher Bertrand Russell advocates for UBI as the best way to merge anarchism and socialism. But the idea of UBI really picks up during the 1960s in the United States. Nobel Prize-winning economists Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, Jean Timogen, James Tobin, Paul Samuelson, and Gunnar Mergel all put their support behind UBI. Even Martin Luther King Jr., shortly before he was assassinated, was a fan. Here's a snippet of Martin Luther King advocating for UBI. And that is a great deal that the society can and must do if the Negro is to gain the economic security that he needs. Now one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. As all this momentum is picking up speed, in the late 1960s, more than 1,000 economists write to President Nixon, calling for UBI as the main attack in the war on poverty. This leads President Nixon to introduce a bill called the Family Assistance Plan, guaranteeing a UBI of $1,600 a year for a family of four, equivalent to $10,000 in today's money. He calls it the most significant piece of social legislation in the nation's history. It's approved in the House, but rejected in the Senate because Democrats think the amount isn't generous enough. The bill gets tweaked, but then the same thing happens. And in 1978, it's thrown out once and for all. The next time a country comes this close to introducing UBI is in 2016, when the Swiss hold a referendum on UBI. There was no clear proposal in terms of amount and how it would be funded. UBI advocates were asking for 2,500 Swiss francs for adults and 625 Swiss francs for children, which is roughly the same in US dollars. But 77% of people rejected the proposal, only 23% were in favour. Reasons for this included lack of clarity, concerns over funding, fear of the unknown. Another was how it might affect migration. Despite the result of the Swiss referendum, UBI lives on. In fact, it seems to be more popular than ever before. Many are concerned about stagnating wages, rising inequality, financial insecurity, as well as robots, automation and AI taking our jobs. As Guy Standing points out, the left is realising that the labour movement has come to an end, and the right is realising that the market economy isn't working for everyone and is increasingly unstable. Not surprisingly, it also has huge interest in one of the places automating away many human jobs. That's Silicon Valley. People like Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder of Facebook and his co-founder Chris Hughes, Elon Musk, co-founder of PayPal, Tesla and SpaceX, along with a million other companies it would seem, Eric Schmidt, ex-CEO of Google, Richard Branson, founder of the Virgin Empire, and many others have come out in support of UBI. And now, with a US presidential candidate offering UBI as his flagship proposal, as well as many experiments underway, you get a sense that UBI is here to stay. So that's a quick summary of how UBI found its way into the mainstream. At this point, you might be wondering, do we have any idea, any evidence as to what happens when we give people free money? I mean, are people just going to stop working, you know, rip bongs all day, 
or are they actually going to be more productive with their time? The short answer is, we actually don't know. Of all the experiments we've run, none are universal, basic, and permanent, which is what UBI is. But we still have some evidence. At the time President Nixon almost passed UBI in the 1970s, there were actually experiments underway in both the US and Canada. In the US, a Roosevelt Institute report suggests that UBI didn't make the average worker drop out of the labor force, but it also notes that the biggest US experiment had a 4.6% reduction in employment and a 7.4% decline in earnings. There was also this strange finding of skyrocketing divorce rates, which some believe caused Nixon to eventually get cold feet on his family assistance plan. However, Rutger Bregman explains that researchers years later found this increase was exaggerated and in fact didn't change all that much. As for the Canadian experiment, Bregman notes work hours dropped by 1% for men, 3% for married women, and 5% for unmarried women, but the main breadwinners actually hardly worked less at all. And it was also found that this declining work coincided with better school performance, teenagers staying in school longer, higher graduation rates, as well as young adults postponing marriage, fewer births, fewer mental health complaints, and decreased hospitalizations and domestic violence. Outside of the experiments in the 70s, we also have Alaska and its Alaska Permanent Fund. So what is that? Well, since 1982, Alaska has been paying residents a dividend from the state's oil revenues. The amount ranges from $1 to $2,000 a year. Evidence suggests that the dividend has improved child nutrition, lowered inequality, and created thousands of jobs. But with it paying so little, it doesn't say much about the effects of UBI that would pay a much higher amount, like $12,000 US dollars, right? More recently, there was a 2009 experiment in London which gave £3,000 to 13 homeless men. After a year and a half, seven of the 13 actually had a roof on their head. One recipient, who'd been addicted to heroin, got clean and took up gardening classes, funnily enough. He said, For some reason, for the first time in my life, everything just clicked. I'm starting to look after myself, wash and shave. Now, I'm thinking of going back home. I've got two kids. In recent years, there's also been a huge increase in direct transfer programs in poor countries, where instead of giving your money to charities who then invest in huge infrastructure projects with uncertain returns, your money actually goes straight into a poor person's bank account, right? Pretty cool. One of these charities is called Give Directly. The evidence suggests their cash grants results in a 38% lasting rise in income, a 58% increase in home ownership and livestock possession, and a 42% decrease in the number of days children go hungry. As the economist Charles Kenny says, the big reason people are poor is because they don't have enough money, and it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that giving them money is a great way to reduce that problem. Or as another economist, Joseph Hanlon, says, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you have no boots. Intuitively, this makes sense, right? A poor person trying to get by is in a much better position to know how to improve their life than some outsider. There's anecdotal evidence of this one young guy in Kenya who used his $500 Give Directly grant to buy a motorbike. He quit his job at a stone quarry so he could ferry people around town, which tripled his income. There's just no way a foreign aid organization would have known to buy this guy a motorbike. We also have evidence of what lottery winners do with their prize money. Studies show that, after winning the lottery, people continued to do work of some kind, but only a small minority remain in jobs they had before winning, most doing paid or unpaid jobs that they enjoy. So the 
idea here is that if you win the lottery, you're probably likely to quit your job, but you'll be doing something else with that time, even if it's unpaid work. So that's the bulk of the evidence we actually have at this stage. Basically, first off, we don't have the perfect experiment, though many more are underway. Second, the experiments we do have in the rich world show a slight reduction in work, but people generally use this free time in productive ways. And third, direct transfer programs in poor countries seem to be a huge success, much better than their alternatives. And that's it for now. Thank God, that was a lot of information, so congrats on getting this far. Just to quickly recap, we now know that UBI is the idea of the government giving every citizen a basic income. This idea has been with us for a very long time, with the US and Switzerland coming quite close to implementing UBI in the past. But now, in 2019, it's more popular than never before. And while we don't have the perfect experiments on UBI, the evidence we do have suggests people don't stop working as much as you might think. Next episode, we'll dive right into the modern debate by looking at the arguments progressives are making for UBI. For example, what's behind Andrew Yang's presidential campaign? Are robots really taking all of our jobs? And also, the mysterious connection between communism and UBI that nobody is talking about. See you next time. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favor. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting, or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There. Too easy. See you next time.